A little girl was attending her first ever wedding and she whispered to her mum, why is the bride wearing white? And her mum said, oh, that's because white is the colour of happiness and this is the happiest day of her life. And the girl said, oh, okay. And she thought about it for a moment and said, why is the groom wearing black? Uh, That's enough of the stereotypical wedding jokes. Uh, The reason the bride wears white is not because it's the symbol for happiness. Uh, White is supposed to be a symbol for purity. And it certainly used to be. Um, No, it's not so much anymore these days, although in some cases it is. We've spent a couple of weeks now on on this same Bible passage on the topic of marriage. The first week we talked a little bit to the husbands but mostly to the wives. The second week we talked mostly to the husbands and a little bit to the wives. Um, And Paul finished off by saying this is a profound mystery. And what he was referring to as this mystery is is, is this whole marriage thing. It it was the way he was describing this, this one flesh relationship, the relationship between husbands and wives, the fact that when you get married you join together and you actually become one. He says this is a profound mystery. But in all of this discussion about husbands and wives, he's actually got in his mind something bigger than marriage. He's actually been focused on the profound mystery of Christ and the church. Yep, there's been some great lessons here for husbands. Yep, there's been some great lessons here for wives and about how we as husbands and wives together can can have our marriage in a way in which God intends us to be. Marriage is a living, breathing metaphor and symbol of our relationship with Christ. And so more important than the lessons that we get out of it to apply to our our own marriage, more importantly, and, and for everybody, not just for the married, is for us to know what it means for our relationship with Christ. Something which I've found to be true is that we can never hope to understand Christianity until we understand the cross. The cross of crucifixion is a device for execution and yet it's become the symbol of Christianity. The cross is central to our faith in Christ. Why is that? Nicky Gumbel, who who put together the Alpha course, in, in, in the videos for that, he actually makes himself this little electric chair and he hangs it around his neck. And, um, and, and he does it to make a point. What he's saying is... It's the same as if today we were to hang an electric chair or if we were to hang a noose around our neck, um, the fact that some people actually hang a cross around their neck. Does anyone here wear a cross? No? You do sometimes? Yep. But isn't that bizarre that, that we would wear a tool for execution around our neck? Isn't it bizarre that, that when the symbol for Christianity is the cross and yet it's a tool for execution? Why is that? And until we understand why, until we understand what the cross means, we're actually not going to get it. We're never going to fathom the depth of what God has actually done for us. Jesus Christ loves us so much that he sacrificed his life. He died on the cross to save us. 
And it wasn't any accident that he ended up nailed to an executioner's cross. He planned to be there. It was like when he arrives at earth, he gets his little GPS out and right destination, cross. That's where he's going to get to. That was his whole purpose for coming. It, was, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't like God went, oops, didn't mean that to happen. Uh, what can we do with that now? That was his whole reason for coming. Jesus died for the church. Now, I've explained the church before. Don't go getting it in your head that the church is a building. Don't get it in your head that the church is an institution or an organisation or a denomination. The church is a way of saying Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of Christ, those who believe in him and follow him and gather together to worship him. Uh, Now, that last part's important, by the way. Gathering together to worship. Uh, in our individualism today, we tend to think of, you know, my Christianity is my business. Um, but there's actually something very important about the church being a gathered people. You see, the Greek word that we actually translate as church is ecclesia. And its meaning is the gathered ones. It was good that we had the army up here this morning. Um, it, it's actually, the original use in classical Greek was It would be like a a parade, like the ecclesia would be when the army came together on parade. They all come together. They're all off individually, off in their own units or whatever, but when they come together, there's the ecclesia together. That was the original use of the word, but then they started using the word ecclesia to describe the church. It's the gathered ones. A lot of people these days say, "I, I I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's just between me and God. What they're really saying is, I don't like Christians. I don't like hanging out with Christians, but I know I've got to be one to be saved, so I'll be a Christian all by myself. Well, And they think, okay, well, that, that makes me good. But I'm just not too sure that that's true. Because the sacrifice of Christ was for the ecclesia. It was for the gathered Christians, the gathered disciples of Christ. And so Jesus died for the church. Now sometimes you won't feel like fellowshipping. But you've got to remember, Christ died not for our individuality, but for our togetherness in him. And being together in the name of Christ is really important. So he died for the church, that he might sanctify her, that he might present her to himself in splendour, and that he would make her holy and blameless. Let's pull these together. What does it mean that Jesus died to sanctify us? It says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. There's not too many weddings that start at 8am. Has anyone been to a wedding that starts that early? There's not many of them and there's a very good reason for that. It's because the bride will certainly not be ready. There's no doubt about it, she's not going to be ready. 
It takes hours for the bride to get ready. They get up and it just bamboozles my mind. They, they have to get up, they have to have a shower, go to the hairdresser, get all dude up and get into their makeup and into their dress. And it's quite a procedure that most of us men could never possibly comprehend. I mean, it, it's, there's obviously some kind of secret thing going on here because, well, I just can't fathom spending any more than about 12 or 15 minutes to, to get ready to go somewhere. Um, so we don't understand it, but, but we do love it when, it when our wives go to the effort of making themselves... Oh, sorry? <laughs> Twelve minutes? Oh, no, oh, that's, that's, that's sort of like the maximum. <laughs> you see, some of us have to do our hair. <laughs> and I'm including a shave. And ironing the shirt. Back, back in the first century, um, oh no, hang on, let, me, let me go back a bit. I'm not too, too familiar with the toiletry and the bathing customs of first century Palestine, but I'm pretty sure that ordinary old Joe Blow, or in this case Jill Blow, uh, would not have had running water. Um, so I imagine baths were nowhere near as common or as regular as what we take them for granted today. I mean, today, if, if we don't have a bath every day, well, we're considered a grot. Um, whereas, and some of us have two or maybe even three baths a day, depending on what we've been doing. Um, but baths back then just weren't very common. Maybe they only had a bath once a week. I, I don't know. Or maybe it might have only been every two weeks. Or maybe it depended on how much money you had or how close you were to the river or how private the river actually was when you got there. I don't know. But I do understand that that when the bride was getting ready for the groom, she would have a ceremonial bathing. Never in her lifetime would she be as clean as that day when she was presented to the groom. Back in the first century, it was a big deal to have a bath, just as it is today in places in the world where they don't have clean running water on tap, as it were. And so the bride would be cleansed completely in water. All of the built up filth and grime from days or maybe even weeks of living somewhere with an earthen floor um, would just be washed away and never would she be cleaner than what she was on her wedding day. So for us, baths aren't really a big thing. But for them it was. It was a huge thing. And this is the image that we're given for the church to be made holy. To be in relationship with a holy God means that we have to be holy and guess what? We're not. And this was the goal of the cross, to make us holy. Verse 26 says that he cleanses us by the washing with water through the word. Now, you know that having a bath isn't going to make you holy. It's not like you jump into the shower and then you come out and go, oh, now I'm holy. That's not what happens. And the fact that Christ died on the cross doesn't even mean that everybody in the world is automatically made holy. Anyone can be sanctified. Anyone can become holy. But there has to be this washing with water through the word. What does that mean? 
Well, it's obviously referring to baptism, but I think even more so it's referring directly to what baptism represents. Nobody was ever truly saved by having a little bit of water sprinkled over them. Nor was anybody truly saved by being completely immersed in the river. It happens every time we go skiing, but that doesn't mean that all the skiers in town are are saved. In some denominations, it is taught that provided you're baptised, doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter what you do with the rest of your life, you're in. You've had our magic water sprinkled on you, therefore it's all good. I'm afraid that's just a load of rubbish. There's nothing biblical about that. So don't go hanging your hopes on that one. It certainly does matter what we believe. Because it says here, it talks about being washed with water through the word. A deep cleansing through the word. It matters what you hear. It matters what you believe. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is very important. Now Sue was asking the kids today, what what, what is this sword of the spirit? It's the word of God. And what is the word of God? The Bible. That's right. It's also the gospel of Jesus Christ that we find in the Bible. What is the gospel? Gospel simply means good news. So what is the good news of Jesus? Well, to understand the good news, first we've got to understand the bad news. Um, Here's the bad news. Every one of us are sinners. None of us meets God's standard for holiness. And so all of us deserve death. But here's the good news. Jesus took that punishment for us. His destination was the cross and he went straight to the cross. And he paid our punishment for us and so we are justified freely by his grace. Now here's the amazing thing. Jesus said, you know, it's a good thing that there's some people who die for a good man. But nobody dies for a bad man. Well, here's the amazing thing. Jesus didn't die for the good people of the world. He died for the bad people of the world. He died for people like me. God chooses us. He he decides to make us holy. He decides to make us his long before we ever deserved it. You know... It's impossible, if you know your Bible really well, it's impossible to read this without looking back to something that God said through the prophet Ezekiel hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. This image of being washed and made clean, this image of becoming the bride of Christ, goes way beyond baptism and we can find it right back in Ezekiel. And it's an image of how God takes those who are unholy and he makes them holy. It's an image of how God takes those who are unworthy and makes them worthy. It's an image of how God takes those who are broken and despised and lost and lonely and unloved and he brings them into his love and into his care. It's an image of how he has always done this with those that he chooses. Let me read this little metaphor for Israel. Um, And I want you to 
feel it. Feel what God feels for Israel. Feel for what Israel must have felt before God did what he did and as God did what he did. So I'm reading from Ezekiel chapter 16. And it's a pretty confronting image. I'm going to to tell you that right from the start. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say this. This is what sovereign Yahweh says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. These are the baddies. What what he's saying is, you come from bad stock. You had no hope right from the beginning. They were the baddies, they're evil, they're horrible, and that's where you come from. Verse 4. On the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No, No one looked on you with pity, or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. What a horrible picture of a baby being born and nobody loves it enough to even cut its cord. Nobody loves it enough to even give it its very first bath and they just toss it out in the dust. What what a horrible picture. And what God is saying is this is what Israel was like. Israel was just unloved, neglected, filthy, wretched, pitiful and absolutely helpless. You getting this picture? Verse 6. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed. Your hair grew. You who were naked and bare. Later, I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness I gave you my solemn oath and I entered into covenant with you, declares Sovereign Yahweh, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewellery. I put bracelets on your arm and a necklace on your neck. I put a ring in your nose, earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because of the splendour I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares Sovereign Yahweh. Can you see the connection here 
with what we've just read just before in Ephesians. No one is worthy of God. And what a horrible image of that baby being born and nobody loves them enough to even give them a bath and the baby is unable to bathe itself. That's us. Left to our own devices, we are not holy. We are not worthy. And so Christ became the sacrifice on the cross to change all that and to make us holy. We were unloved. We were discarded and and despised. But there is a God who loves us. And there's the image. When God chose Israel as his bride, she was still unwashed. He made his covenant with her. He made his decision that he was going to love Israel. And he did all this before she'd even had a bath. And then he washed her clean. And made her beautiful. And that's what God does for us. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. If we wait until we've got our lives all together before we come to Jesus, well, we're going to be waiting for a very long time. Because guess what? Try as you might to get your life all together, you are going to fail. I can promise you that. Because you can't deal with sin. It's God who deals with sin. And God takes us as we are. Wretched, pitiful, poor, broken, filthy, steeped in sin. And as we respond to the gospel, as we fall on our face before the throne of God and confess, Lord, I cannot do it by myself. I need you, Jesus. And he takes all of our sin away and he makes us holy. And so when Jesus returns again, we're going to be presented to him as his bride, pure and spotless and holy. Not because of anything that we've done, but because God loved us enough to do that in us. Now you might think of yourself as a bit of a disappointment. You might think of yourself as a monumental failure as a Christian. Well, the cross is the solution to all of that. When Jesus returns, he's not going to see you as what you see yourself. He's going to see you as pure and holy because you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. As we repent of our sins, he forgives us and he takes all of that filth away. And you're left with holiness. The holiness that God chooses to give you. Why am I telling you all this? It's because you need to know it. And it's important that you know it. It's important that you get it into your head. It's not just a feeling. You have to know it. Because there's going to be times that you don't feel holy. You're going to do stuff that you're going to be deeply ashamed of and go, God, I'm a miserable failure. How could I ever be redeemed? Like you've done this so much good stuff for me and here I am, I've done it again and... And you are not going to feel holy. 
And sometimes even when you confess your sins to God and say, I'm so sorry, Lord, I've, I've done it again. But you're going to feel unholy. Even though you've confessed it. And so you've got to know more than just feel. The fact that I don't feel it doesn't mean that it isn't true. And so we need to know that we are made holy. There is no sin too great that you have ever committed that cannot be forgiven and that is not forgiven. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how evil your actions once were. In Christ you are forgiven and your filth is washed away. Isn't that great? You know, people who actually understand this and, and, and are really thankful to God would be pr- pretty likely at this stage to, to sing out, Hallelujah! Praise God! Isn't this fantastic? But then there's us who are just really stayed. And... Is anybody excited that God has done this for them? Yeah, I am. I am. But there's more to add yet. It's sort of like the, but wait, there's a free set of steak knives. You know? um, the kids don't even understand what that is. I don't think they give away steak knives anymore, do they? I don't know. I don't watch TV ads like I used to. But Jesus is still doing stuff. He hasn't finished with us. It's not like he went, okay, we've done the cross bit. I've saved them. I've raised from the dead. She's all good. I can sit down and rest now and nothing else to worry about. God, God's still at work. Jesus nourishes the church and he very deeply and affectionately cares for the church. Or a good word to use there is cherishes the church. The word nourishes could have just as easily been translated as rares the church or nurtures the church through to maturity. And that's what we're on about here. That's why we call ourselves bush disciples, because we're all about discipleship. When you become a Christian, that's just the beginning of your walk with Jesus. It's not like, right, you're saved, that's it, all good to go. It's discipleship. We keep following, we keep, we're being nurtured in Christ. We're being fed, we're growing in Christ. Baby Christians need to be nourished so that they can grow. They need to be read. They need to be learning and being educated. In Matthew, Jesus said, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's just so true. Physically, if you stop eating, you grow weak. You get sick and eventually you die. True? Yeah? Well, if you stop feeding spiritually, you'll be a weak Christian. If you stop feeding spiritually, you'll become a sick Christian and eventually your faith will die. And nobody else might care about you, but Christ certainly does. He feeds us, but we've got to eat. Don't be like an anorexic Christian, you know, where, where everybody's trying to feed them. They know that, you know, somebody really, really, really needs food and you're trying to feed them, but they just won't eat it. Or if they do eat it, they then go and vomit it all up. Spiritually, don't be anorexic. 
Christ is trying to feed us spiritually. But some of us just don't want to eat our spiritual food. Christ feeds us. So to become a strong Christian, we need to eat. To become a mature Christian, to grow and develop into the bride of Christ that he wants us to be, we eat. So how does he feed us? Well, he feeds us through the word. As we read our Bible, as we go to Bible studies, as we come to church and hear the preaching. He feeds us when we draw near to him in prayer. Not just talking to him, but but listening to what God might be saying to us as well. He feeds us by filling us with his Holy Spirit. And he feeds us when we fellowship with other disciples of Christ. He feeds us as we gather together in worship. And as we share in communion. He feeds us. I guess the teaching ministry is big for me. I I reckon it's just so important to be fed on God's word. And that's why I keep dishing it up. That's the gift God's given me and that's what I do. And Christ feeds us. But more than that, he cherishes us. Did you know you're cherished? Did you know you're cherished? What a wonderful feeling it is to be so deeply loved by somebody that you would use the word cherished to describe it. And that's how Christ feels about you. That's how Christ feels about us, the church, those who gather together to worship Christ. He cherishes us. Before Christ picked you up and washed you clean, you may have never known what love was. And it is so sad today that there are people who will go through life and even when they reach their old age they will say, I never knew what it was like to be loved. There are people today all around us who would say, I've never felt cherished. There is one who gives that sort of love for everyone. We are cherished by the God who loves us. We are cherished by the God who sacrificed himself to save us. Bask in that for a moment. In the knowledge that you are cherished. Just close your eyes. Oh Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to be cherished. Lord, it just amazes me only a little bit earlier in this Bible passage we read how how we fear God and yet here Lord you reveal to us the mystery that you cherish us you deeply love and affectionately love us oh Lord what a blessing that is 
Lord, feed us. Cleanse us from the washing of the water of your word. Make us holy. And feed us, Lord. Nourish us. Develop us into the church that you want us to be. Develop us individually as we grow stronger and stronger in faith. And develop us together as as the Ecclesia, as the gathered disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see ourselves as you see us. It's beautiful and spotless on the day that Christ returns will be presented as, as his bride. Washed, cleansed, beautiful in your sight. Amen.